I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How's it going today? It's going pretty well. Thanks. Great. How are you? I'm doing well as well. 
I'm doing well as well. I'm so excited for this episode. Yes. Because it's a little bit different than mm-hmm. our previous maxis because mm-hmm. today we're going to be joined by a guest. Yes, we are. Our first guest of the pod. Today we will be talking about gender and queer theory in Twelfth Night. And we're going to have our discussion first. And then we will be joined in the second half of the episode today by Dr. Sawyer Kemp, who is a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow in Transgender Studies with the Gender and Women's Studies Department at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Super excited. Yes. We recorded that interview with them yesterday, and it was an incredible conversation. Yes, it was fascinating. Go ahead and continue listening to our section, and then uh, make sure to stay on. We will on. also be We will also be interesting. <laughs> we promise. And then stay tuned for Dr. Sawyer Kemp. But that's for the latter half of the episode. Let's go ahead and get into what the two of us have set up for our discussion today. Yeah, let's start off with the historical context of Twelfth Night Mm -hmm. and how gender and queerness were understood during that time and um, being discussed. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really easy to take what we know now. And I mean, we've had this conversation before and people talk about, you know, how timeless Shakespeare is and how all of these themes uh, still resonate with people today in, you know, the 21st century. But I think it's a disservice to not take a look at what was actually happening during the time he was writing. And once you kind of excavate that history, it really adds in some more layers. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about when it comes to gender and queerness and how it was being talked about. And one of those was the role that Elizabeth I had in this time period in terms of like, she's very fascinating to me because she, you know, in this very patriarchal society, defies Mm -hmm. the role of a woman compared to male subjects and male courtiers. And we see this a lot when people talk about her and even how she was portrayed. One thing that she said, she had a speech that she gave to her troops at Tilbury in 1588, which I think does a great job of representing how Elizabeth was very doubly gendered and viewed as two sexes Mm -hmm. in one. She gave this speech and she says, quote, I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England too. I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. It's in contrast with the basic setup of gender roles during Shakespeare's time. Yeah. And the the very delineated, this is what men can do and this is what women can do. And we have so many laws dictating how you can live your life based on how you were born, both Mm -hmm. the sex you were born with and the class you were born into. Yeah. And we'll touch a little bit more on Elizabeth I's influence on gender in Twelfth Night. But I just kind of wanted to lay the foundation as we start thinking about our female characters or our female identifying characters in Twelfth Night. Right. At the same time, the theatrical understanding of femininity and how to portray femininity Mm. was actively changing during this time because, as we talked about in our previous episode, Plays for the Court, there were these court masks that were theatrical-ish performances, amateur productions, where women could play women, and elite women were on the stage. And because of that, it impacted how the boy actors who were portraying women in the public stages, the professional theater, how they portrayed femininity. Mm -hmm. You could see 
you know, if you were at court specifically and watching, you know, a marathon of performances <laughs> uh-huh. because it's the holidays, you could see women playing women in the mask using dance to convey emotion and their character. And then in the same mask or even in a play later the same day, you could see these boy actors and you have direct comparison. Yeah. Right. So the concept of what it means to portray femininity was being influenced by women, even if they couldn't actually be actors. Yeah. Be paid professionals who are recognized for the craft. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, performing is so dangerous. Yeah. It's too dangerous for women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. At the same time as there was this female monarch and theatricality of gender, there's also this very uh, different understanding of, I don't know if it's necessarily the binary of sex. Right. So in the, the English Renaissance and early modern period, there's at the same time as these very structured roles for what is feminine and what is masculine, there is a social and cultural fascination with gender ambiguity and androgyny. Mm-hmm. Sir Edward Coke, who was the foremost jurist in the English Renaissance, stated in his commentaries an acknowledgement of a third gender. He used a term that is now considered very harmful mm-hmm. for intersex people. So I'm not going to say it on yeah. the pod. Starts with an H. So he acknowledges that intersex people exist, but also states that these individuals must follow a masculine or feminine gender role exclusively by law. Mm-hmm. So there was a judicial binarism that reduced gender to a gender binary. Mm-hmm. And that also bled into like how you had to present yourself. Because Philip Stubbs, who was an English pamphleteer, I have a quote from him. And I am going to use the word only because I'm using it in a quotation. But again, historical context, right. my friends. And this is from his pamphlet, An Anatomy of Abuses from 1578. Quote, our apparel was given us as a sign distinctive to discern betwixt sex and sex, and therefore one to wear the apparel of another sex is to participate with the same and to adulterate the verity of his own kind. Wherefore, these women may not improperly be called hermaphrodite, that is, monsters of both kinds, half women, half men. Yeah. Yeah. That was a um, very much in the consciousness of the English people. Mm-hmm. At the time, or right before Shakespeare's writing, Twelfth Night, where we see Viola. Right. And there's also, beyond the judicial and religious and political and medical discourse about intersex individuals, there's also a lot of social concern about cross-dressing individuals, like mall cut purse, as well as rumors of queens who were kings, Elizabeth, yeah. and kings who were queens, James, James I. Yeah. Mall Cut Purse, we have talked about briefly, uh, is the central character in uh, Middleton and Decker's The Roaring Girl, Mm -hmm. based on a real woman, Mary Frith, who cross-dressed to um, cross social, uh, for social gain. Yeah, she uh, class-crossed as well. Yes, class-crossed, to essentially Mm class-cross. Lady Arabella Stewart also passed as male for social necessity. Uh, Lady Arabella Stewart was a cousin of James I. I was going to say. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, who? Uh, <laughs> so she was a cousin of James I who was in the running to be Elizabeth I's successor to the throne. She was actually being considered prior to James. And then William Cecil and the advisors decided to go with James instead. Oh. What? Yeah. She was fourth in line to the English throne during James's reign. 
And then she married William Seymour, Lord Beauchamp, and James saw it as a potential prelude to an attempt to seize the crown. Ah. When she was trying to marry William Seymour, James told them to uh, not get married. He forbade Mm. the match. And so they got married in secret. Oh, okay. And then they were imprisoned for marrying without the king's permission. William Seymour, Lord Beauchamp, was imprisoned in the tower. Lady Ah. Arabella was uh, imprisoned elsewhere. And she dressed as a man in order to escape her imprisonment. Oh. So men and women passed as women and men, Uh respectively, for both political and social reasons not necessarily attributed to what we now understand as sexuality in this time. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. James is very paranoid about losing his... Anyone coming Yeah, Yeah, he really is. Every time we bring up James, it's like he was worried that someone was going to overthrow him. Mm-hmm. Poor James. Then there were obviously, you know, this theatrical tradition of cross-dressing boy actors who mm-hmm. were playing women. And that was becoming controversial because the Puritans were very against it. Why did men play women in Elizabethan England, you may ask? Well, no one really knows other than it was tradition, but maybe yeah. homoeroticism was more acceptable than women's sexuality mm-hmm. as well. Well, it does make sense because, as we've said time and time again, the most threatening thing for men of this time period was women's sexuality. So, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, within the context of early modern theater, Twelfth Night can be seen as a critique of the heterosexual norms in three ways. Mm-hmm. And this is according to uh, Casey Charles's article, Gender Trouble in Twelfth Night. The effects of Viola's cross dressing point to the socially constructed nature of gender. The representations of same-sex love between Viola and Olivia and Sebastian and Antonio interrogates the binary and the hegemony of heterosexuality. And the final act can be seen as exposing the failure of forced heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, Viola's disruption of the gender binary and its hierarchies can be seen as also leading to the other lovers, creating fantasies that turn the objects of their affections into something more than they are, blurring the lines that confine them to heterosexuality and class. Let's look at all of this, maybe character by character, relationship by relationship, and like dive into Mm -hmm. them. Right. Yeah. Let's start with Viola Cesario. Shakespeare's cross-dressing plays, or they can be seen as validating and making real the societal concepts of a gender and a binary. And part of that is because gender is very much reliant on appearance in Shakespeare's plays. I think that there's a lot of emphasis on, for example, Viola's clothing, Mm-hmm. You know, her maiden weeds, she can't go back to being a female or the you know societal role of a female until she's in her proper clothing. I know I think that Shakespeare really in this play makes the gender binary mostly based on appearance rather than right, yeah, 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 because of the you know the fact that Viola is a boy actor playing a woman who is then playing a man within the play itself, those binary limits on heterosexual erotic attraction are further upset. Mm -hmm. You could make the argument that it's showing that gender is a part playable by any sex. Yes. And Viola also embodies this doubleness, kind of like, you know, like an Elizabeth kind of figure where uh, she speaks to the audience and she strengthens our awareness of her doubleness, which can be interpreted differently depending on the production. But You know, similarly to Shakespeare making Viola this character who criticizes her disguise and thinks it's wretched and calls herself poor monster. She's acutely aware of her doubleness. Viola seems to be a very conscious character. Like she in her duality, duality, she's she's very much aware of her, you know, 
monstrosity as something that's in between. And I say monstrosity with, you know, air quotes. She seems to always be in this state where she is longing to return to her female identity. And yet Mm -hmm. she's always being put through the ringer of of navigating, like, I don't want to say deceiving everybody, but she's very aware of what the roles are. She's still she's still playing. Yeah. While she is very aware of her duality, she at the same time in private wants to reject it. Yeah. In public fully leans in yes. to playing Cesario. Yes, she does. You know, passing as a man allowed women certain privileges mm-hmm. that they did not otherwise have. Mm-hmm. And she got really good at embodying what she thought uh, masculinity was. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, she talks all about how she's playing a part when she's first delivering the message to Olivia. So right, all of this meta theatricality of boy actor playing a girl pretending to be a boy playing a part is very apparent in Viola's character. And it kind of makes you wonder within the context of a lot of this, like, who is Viola really? Right. You know? Like, do we actually really do we actually really get to know Viola much outside of longing to return to her maiden weeds and wanting to be her master's mistress and her uh, longing for her, you know, family. family. Yeah. So yeah. I think a lot of Viola for being the character that is constantly thrust into navigating different aspects of gender. She's the one that's like the least interested in playing these other parts mm-hmm. of gender and it's very fascinating yeah. to me, like, most of what she wants is based on, like, her brother. Heterosexuality. Her, her, yeah, heterosexuality. And she's the character that we see, you know, for being a character who gender constructs are so pushed upon in a way that she has to play a lot of them mm-hmm. to pass. I mean, I would imagine all she wants to do is settle down, get married, and have babies, and have a family. It's kind of how I, like, read, you know. Right. Especially when you compare her to the other Shakespearean heroines who also cross-dress Portia in Merchant of Venice and Rosalind Mm -hmm. and Celia in As You Like It, specifically Portia and Rosalind. Portia does it because she, as a woman, knows she can do something that a man cannot, Mm -hmm. but has to pretend to be a man in order to do it, Yeah, right? In order to be the smart lawyer Mm -hmm. that she has the capacity to be yeah and we know who portia is outside of that even when rosalind is dressed as ganymede Mm -hmm. we see so much of rosalind's true opinions about the world yeah she doesn't hold back i mean she cross-dresses in order to escape a confining court yes and leaves and is just herself and is free to say what she feels and i think Viola has, in being both a servant and a eunuch, mm-hmm. playing the part of a eunuch, I think that's also an important note, is that she's not just dressing like a young boy. Mm-hmm. There's a brief line where she mentions that she is going to play the part of a eunuch, and a yeah. lot of times that explains her voice, that she's high voice, Yeah. right? Yeah. But we don't see that she has also put this different class on herself, this lower class than what she is, Yeah. that she's confined to... That could be a reason why we don't see as much of her thoughts and opinions yeah. on the world. I did see something that is very similar to that, which is Viola is disguised as a eunuch. And one thought is that it's a metaphorical term for social self-castration. And uh-huh. it also might... That she's also mm-hmm. cutting off part of herself. Yeah. yeah. And it also might instead be taken as a mode of sexual self-denial. That's another one. Mm-hmm. And... 
Uh, Stephen Orgel notes that Cesario is Viola's chosen name and suggests that the participle casus can mean cut rather than belonging to Caesar. Like cease. Yeah. Yeah. So this suggestion leads cut to castration. And so she stops her own sexuality. And then, funnily enough, this character that she has created and intentionally said, I'm a eunuch, ultimately attracts both sexes you got orsino and olivia mm-hmm. like orsino is less even though she's yeah even though she's named herself eunuch eunuch yeah like yeah you could see it both ways whether it's a social self-castration or a sexual self-castration but either way i think that that does stand up in the play how she acts towards you know everyone around her as she's trying to navigate the world as this eunuch cesario yeah she has a mask on mm-hmm. in a way yeah that for the other Shakespearean heroines who cross-dress. Cross-dressing is a freeing of their state. Mm-hmm. They are more free to do things. Yes. And in this, it is it is survival. It is survival, yeah. And throughout the entirety of, of this play, up until the end, she's unable to be honest about her love and her feelings and her affections. And that's mm-hmm. the gender that she's putting on as well as the class that she's putting on. So I think that that name Cesario, it doesn't really get resolved in any way. <laughs> Shakespeare just throws it in. And I think that one place where you really see this eunuch um, like self-castration play out is when she's responding to Orsino's misogynistic speech where he says that women are biologically and morally inferior because they lack the capacity for real love. And Orsino views women as incomplete because that was something at the time where like a woman was thought of as being an incomplete man who just didn't have genitals, you know. Because there was this scientific idea that the human body could only grow outwards yeah so therefore women just never developed a penis yes and could potentially develop a penis yes they could but they just hadn't and so at this point they're incomplete men and that's kind of like a castration in a way this eunuch theme is very prevalent in some very subtle ways and i don't know how one would necessarily be able to from a production standpoint emphasize or highlight the eunuch principles of this play right You have Cesario, Viola Cesario, who is this eunuch figure. And then on the flip side, you have Sebastian, who is the male half of the twins. Mm -hmm. Sebastian, who does look similar to Cesario. He also has an androgyny to him. Yeah, has referred to himself uh, as like a maid. He says to Olivia, you are betrothed both to a maid and man. They both contain this duality of gender Mm -hmm. or this blurring of specific concepts surrounding gender at this time yeah and sebastian is also one half of a pairing that is very often queer coded in modern productions in terms of his relationship with antonio because they one haven't known each other for very long no in terms of the length of the play and every time antonio appears on stage with sebastian it's all about the love he bears for sebastian and um how emotionally intimate they are at least um so antonio specifically is often a character that is portrayed in modern productions as queer Mm -hmm. or somehow queer coded yeah he's a pirate and english sea rovers and buccaneers so pirates of that 17th century Mm -hmm. time period and beforehand they were known for having homosexual relationships and practicing homosexual behavior and antonio may simply be a part of that historical tradition right the homoeroticism of being a pirate would have been traditionally more masculine and the homoerotic- And the intimate- Yeah. The intimate language that he has 
there is homoeroticism there. To get very historical for a moment. Please do. Again, as we always say, like the modern concepts of queerness did not exist in the early modern period. They weren't the same identities that we have today. And specifically because marriage was something that you did for political and social gain, uh, it was not necessarily the place that you got all of your intimacy needs met. So it was very common for there to be much greater intimacy than we have today, what were considered friendships. And I'm using right. air quotes because these friendships could have had romantic, erotic aspects to them as well as emotional intimacy. We just don't know. We can read into things now. Yeah. After about the mid-1800s, there was a shift into companionate marriage where your marriage partner in monogamous relationships fulfills your sexual needs, fulfills your emotional emotional needs. intimacy needs, and now it's supposed to be all put on one person. Mm. And at the same time, uh, we see a retreat from these intimate same-sex friendships. Mm. Those friendships become less intimate as the companionate marriage takes hold on modern society, and marriage and heterosexual sex is just for procreation type of relationship falls away. Okay. And you said this is about the 18th century? The 1800s. 1800s. Okay. Does it matter what the intent was 400 years later? Nowadays, it is present. It should not be yeah, ignored. It should not be ignored. Looking at it with a modern lens. And whether or not it is reciprocated by Sebastian, I think, is on the actors and the production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Sebastian uses very romantic, homoerotic language in response to Antonio as well. So there's something that doesn't... But at the same yeah. time, so my point that friendships were more intimate is not to say like, oh, they're just buddies. Right. It's to say that like, moving forward, Sebastian can be married to Olivia, love Olivia, and continue to have this relationship with Antonio. Mm -hmm. This intimacy, this possible like sexual relationship it's not seen as being unfaithful to olivia it's just something that happened yeah yeah i mean king james yeah for example yeah king james all for the time example. there's plenty of thoughts about shakespeare himself having relationships like this so uh, yeah just because they don't get married at the end mm -hmm. we can maybe take more solace in that than i think is often read into it i feel like a lot of modern readings are like oh antonio must be so upset mm -hmm. or antonio got like led on mm -hmm. or played and it's possible that you know in the early modern period it was like oh well you know all right so sebastian's now appropriately married <laughs> and yeah has his best friend as we all do yeah yeah i never read it as um sebastian has the same level of of um affection for antonio i always read antonio was having the more intense feelings towards Sebastian and it makes right. sense to me at the end that Sebastian would marry Olivia and be in his you know quote-unquote appropriate relationship you know within also within his social status yeah marrying higher than his social status but I always just read it and I can't help but feel bad for Antonio not in a way that's oh, like yeah. oh he got played or he got tricked or he got led on but in a way that just the way he talks to Sebastian is so rich with love and affection in a way that's very apparent mm -hmm. 
but when I read Antonio, I'm like, gosh, he really, really liked this man, dude. And like, it just didn't work out for him in the end. And he's got to just go off to sea and, you know, figure out his pirate life. And yeah, he doesn't get married in the end. Right. And speaking of the other character who has way too much time to talk about love and what he thinks it should be. We also see that in Orsino. I don't think people talk enough about Orsino's misogyny. I uh-huh. I that you know very, like that very cringy speech that he has about women speeches. 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 I, he has two speeches. Yes, he has two speeches where he elevates men's ability to love and says women don't have the capacity to love and they're also sexual deviants basically. Mhm. I mean, it's certainly not talked about I think as much as Petruchio's treatment of Kate. Yeah. Petruchio does misogyny in action, mm-hmm. right? But Orsino is very misogynist in words, how he tries to woo Olivia. Mm-hmm. Go on. Uh, so he uses a very specific type of poetry called Petrarchan mm. poetry, which is this style of English poetry at the time that is very flowery, encoded in the class and gender relationships of those who were writing it and who were reading it. Think about the sonnets that Shakespeare writes that are addressed to an attractive man or woman, or uh, the exchange between Romeo and Juliet, where they meet for the first time, is a Petrarchan poem. It's talking about body parts and touching, Mm. and it's very romantic. And that's how he is wooing Olivia is by sending his messengers with these Petrarchan poems while Cesario comes to woo her for Orsino. She does that inventory of body parts. Yeah. It is more of her already knowing the cliches that Orsino's messenger tends to say than her talking about how pretty she is. Mm-hmm. And I see it played a lot of like her being vain. She's tired of hearing her body parts dismembered and eroticized. Because he's, we know that he's sent other messengers beforehand because um, he's like, I'm going to send you, Cesario, because you're younger and you'll probably... He sends Valentine right at the top of the show. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Valentine is not successful. No. Valentine does not get nope. in. So he's really, so he's that yeah. guy that thinks if I ask her one more time, she'll say yes. I'll change her mind. Right. He's not taking no for an mm-hmm. answer. That's Orsino. That's Orsino. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he just sees himself as this, like, ultimate lover, and he's actually very Mm -hmm. bad at it, in love with the idea of being Mm -hmm. in love. I mean, yes, Orsino and Viola as Cesario have these great conversations, so I think it's easy to romanticize that ending, but he very quickly just Mm -hmm. goes, oh, okay, I'll marry you instead then. Yeah, and I guess it does make sense then that Orsino and Viola end up together because she's younger mm-hmm. and she really buys into these and gender stereotypes. Yeah, and she has like such a huge crush on him. Yeah. Wants to be her, you know, her master's maid. Mistress. Mistress, yeah. yeah. So I guess like at the end of the day, like the, the right pair finds each other. Yeah. So while Orsino is not very good at wooing women and just ends up with a woman who is madly in love with him for some reason. After three days. After three days. You know who <laughs> is really good at romantic and erotic language? Does it start with the Do, Oh, the, and end with Olivia? Are the names incredibly similar? Almost yep. to a confusing point? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
Olivia when paired with Viola. Aha. Uh-huh. So as I mentioned earlier, Orsino uses that Petrarchan language to woo Olivia, and she is not having it. But when Viola appears as Cesario, right? Mm-hmm. And already like transgresses the boundary that Olivia has set with nobody should enter her house, no messengers, right? Mm-hmm. Just keeps knocking at the door and gets yep. in. Cesario, again, like the name suggests as a eunuch, uh, also ceases that Petrarchan love script. Ah. When Olivia, you know, says the like, you know, yeah, 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 I know what you're going to say. I've got these mm-hmm. eyes, these lips, whatever. I've heard it all before. I've heard it all, yeah. Essentially, I've heard it all before. You can leave. Viola goes off script as Cesario. Then they have to kind of like improv together. And Viola as Cesario has to keep up with Olivia's wit and repartee. Instead of going, okay, well, bye, and trying to continue to woo Olivia and changing the mm-hmm. script, that also frees Olivia from having to be the recipient of the sonnet, which in Petrarchan love poems, the recipient is often impassable, unmoved. It's unrequited love ah, uh-huh. for the speaker's for the beloved. Recipient, yeah. Yeah, the, the recipient of the sonnet, right? So Olivia is mm-hmm. also interested in the transgression of Cesario, both the physical transition transgression of getting into the house as mm-hmm. well as oh this isn't like a linguistic what, yeah the linguistic transgression yeah so viola improvises and uses her knowledge of female desire to do so and she doesn't just imagine herself as orsino's substitute but instead imagines loving olivia with the same intensity as orsino there's a difference there right yeah. It's not just what would my master say, it's if I loved you with as yeah. much fire as my master does, here is what I would do. Yeah. You know, I read that scene because Viola is, I'm assuming, wildly jealous of Olivia because this is the recipient right. of these romantic gestures, that, of these affections that she, wants. that she wants. And so this very much can come from this fiery, in your guts kind of like, if I was in your place, mm-hmm. this is how I would. That's what you're saying, right? Like, if she was. Not if I was in your place. If, if I if loved you as intensely as my master loves you. you yeah. This is how I would woo you. Mm, okay. So we're talking about two different things. We're talking about two different. This is, I'm imagining that I love you, not mm-hmm. let me imagine what, what I should say as my master's substitute. I was reading it from like a side of. Um, you should dis- accept this because you don't know how lucky this- you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. But because the line is actually. Okay. Um, oh, is it that if I did love you in my master's flame? Yes. If I, yeah. If was, I did love you in my yeah. master's flame. So that's the line I'm, I'm referring to. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Okay. If I loved you with the heat and intensity that my master does. And then Viola goes into more poetry that doesn't focus on Olivia's physicality and body parts like Orsinos does. Instead, it focuses on her soul and keeps her mm-hmm. whole and intact. This makes it not a Petrarchan poem, but a pastoral poem. Uh-huh. Pastoral poetry is used as a site of male homoeroticism. Ah. And so in this scene, this is from an amazing article by Jamie, I'm going to pronounce it probably wrong, but Jamie Ake, called mm-hmm. Glimpsing a Lesbian Poetics in Twelfth Night. Viola, in a sense, 
appropriates the male homoeroticism of pastoral poetry as a space for female homoerotic desire filled with reciprocity that is free of class and gender restrictions. Okay. Then after Viola Cesario leaves, Olivia has a Petrarchan moment of her own, but this, like, revised Mm. version that isn't as cliched. Instead, it's reflecting back on, like, you know, oh, what did I say? Oh, like, this perfect youth. And then she gives, of course, the ring, right? Yes. And the ring itself is also an erotic symbol. In other Shakespeare plays, specifically Merchant of Venice and All's Well That Ends Well, the exchange of rings signifies a yet-to-be-consummated marital union. It's not just any old piece of jewelry. It is saying, I want to have sex with you. Ah, okay. And again, it's because while Olivia is perhaps meeting this androgynous person who's transgressive, but Viola is wooing Olivia as herself, not as her master, imagining if I were here as myself, here's how how I'd woo you. Again, playing a part, doing imagination work like an actor. Like an actor, but in a way that is lesbian homoerotic. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Female homoerotic desire, you know. Yeah. Olivia responds to it in a way that she has not responded to any man's advances to her. Correct. Right. That's very queer in that sense. Yes. Well, that's interesting that you say that because... Uh, the little bit that I know about the source material that Shakespeare took from um, the Italian Glee Ingani in 1592, also The Deceived is what it's translated to. Mm-hmm. The, the same scene that parallels this scene in um, the Italian version, Viola and Olivia seduction scene, it results in a passionate kiss, but it's performed by female actors because in female Italy. actors were allowed in Italy. They were allowed to perform in Italy. Actually, um, everywhere then, else in Europe was fine with yes it. it was just england just england had this yeah boy actor well yeah women can't perform in public stages thing. yeah professionally yeah but in the original source material what is seen to be the most influential parallel you know source material yeah, yeah, yeah. the two characters do have a passionate kiss within this same scene and we don't have the olivia character being fully tuned into the fact that you know this uh messenger is mm-hmm. a woman disguised as a boy, but the audience knows that they're both The women. audience knows. And yeah. the reality we're going to talk about, like, what is Olivia responding to? She's responding to a very androgynous person, someone who is neither clearly male nor clearly female. Yes. And just to wrap up this female homoeroticism, we've said it over and over, identities were not as clear and concrete. There wasn't exactly a discrete lesbian identity in the early modern period Mm -hmm. but there is plenty of female homoeroticism outside of shakespeare um, in art poetry and drama we are going to talk a little bit about a non-shakespeare play in our conversation with dr sawyer kemp yeah any final thoughts before we dive into our conversation with dr kemp uh my final thoughts are just with 12th night you know the show wraps up in a bow with the you know Reinforcing heterosexuality. Reinforcing heterosexuality. But in a lot of ways, I think that there's so much that lingers that never gets resolved. Like the homoeroticism lingers in a lot of ways. So even though technically the play ends with marriages and it ends with returning to your prescribed 
identity, your prescribed class, your prescribed uh, sexual partner. Twelfth Night is very fascinating to me in that I don't really think that many of the things that we see creep up really get resolved in many ways. Yeah. Just minutes before Orsino asks Viola to marry him, he threatens to kill Cesario. Uh, Sebastian responds to Antonio's, and we've talked about this a little bit, but Sebastian responds to Antonio's reappearance and says, oh, my dear Antonio, how have the hours racked and tortured me since I have lost thee? And that seems to not really Mm -hmm. resolve anything for poor Antonio. And then, you know, Olivia is basically like, well, I guess I'm pretty lucky because the person that I was attracted to, I actually can't marry, but she's got an identical twin who's Uh uh-huh who i can marry so good enough yeah if olivia could have it her way she would have both of them oh yeah (laughs) olivia is attracted to the person not the gender exactly and that's something that we don't really get to see resolved a lot of unresolved parts of gender and queer theory in 12th night but for more on queer theory and gender theory let's dive into our conversation with dr sawyer kemp sounds great to me Joining us today as our first ever guest of the podcast is Dr. Sawyer Kemp. Hello. Uh, Dr. Sawyer Kemp. Am I allowed to do uh, that? Let me read your bio real quick. <laughs> oh, shit. No, you can do whatever <laughs> you, you want. <laughs> uh, but let me tell everybody who you are. So Dr. Sawyer Kemp is a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow in Transgender Studies with the Gender and Women's Studies Department at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Sawyer's current book project investigates the rhetoric and industry of quote-unquote accessibility in the contemporary Shakespeare performance. Exploring access as a tool for feminist and queer critique, this project analyzes theater's impact on and outreach to communities of trans and gender nonconforming people, sexual assault survivors, and people with disabilities. Sawyer's work has appeared in Shakespeare Quarterly, Shakespeare Studies, the Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies, and the edited collection Teaching Social Justice Through Shakespeare. Their most recent article, To a Fellows, Transitioning Anti-Blackness, is forthcoming in Shakespeare Bulletin. Welcome to Shakespeare Anyone, Sawyer. Hello. We're so glad to have you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's always exciting to um, get to talk to other Shakespeare enthusiasts. I have a quick question for you. How did you first Shakespeare? (laughs) That's such a good question. (laughs) How did I first Shakespeare? Um... Well, I read it in school, obviously, and I liked I liked reading it. But the first play that I was in was Much Ado About Nothing. I I got into drama kind of by accident because something that I wanted to take was full in high school. I don't remember Mm. what it was. And so I took drama instead. And I auditioned for Much Ado and I got like a very small bit part, like non-speaking, just like woman who stands in the background and goes <gasps> when Hero is accused of <laughs> of infidelity. But like, uh-huh. obviously it made an impression. I, I really liked doing it. Yeah. And then I got to play, this was also in high school, but I got to play the player in uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are uh-huh. dead, which is like, uh-huh. uh, it was really fun to kind of be on the the backwards end of Shakespeare in that way, which I think also made me kind of have a taste for it. Those are probably my first Shakespeare's. I kept doing acting and have done a little bit of directing and didn't really mean to do Shakespeare when I went to grad school necessarily, but I find it really satisfying to work with, even though like as a 
kind as an academic, I position myself a little bit oppositionally to it, right, where I want to take things mm. to task and critique it and think about how it's working. And I, I sort of say that I study Shakespeare, the institution, not the person. And that means I'm a little bit uh, critical about it. But I still find it very satisfying uh, to see a good Shakespeare play, you know, there's just something about it. Well, how, how did you stumble upon in the academic realm? Like, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, I, I had a really fantastic professor in undergrad who taught a class on revenge tragedy, which I was very into. And I thought that I might go to grad school to write about revenge tragedy. But I had also um, been hearing about this company in New York, which I think I think is called the Queen's company i don't know if it's still active but it was all it was an all women slash i think they're a sort of trans inclusive company but they were doing all female approaches to shakespeare which i i was 21 years old and i thought this was very novel and i was you know wrote in my application i want to write about gender swapped shakespeare's and then i went to grad school and read all about them and was like actually never mind (laughs) 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 um actually i i find sometimes that's like an excuse to to not engage with gender as much as I'd like to. Mm. But yeah, and then I read King Lear in one of my first Shakespeare classes in grad school. And just, it was the first moment that I really felt like this deserves the praise that it gets. And and largely, I do think I try to avoid bardolatry. And I, I am invested in decentering big, famous dead white guys in the canon. And, and that's part of my praxis and what I do as a, as a teacher. But I also kind of had this moment of going, well, I really love reading this and I love reading it out loud and I love thinking about how it sounds and and what the kind of meter is doing in this moment. And it was the first moment that I felt any kind of like, kind of unadulterated, just like satisfaction and love about it. So that's sort of my like happy Shakespeare story. I feel like most of my writing is very angry at Shakespeare, but um, I do like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that leads really well into our next question of so our conversation with you is going to be tied in with a episode that we're doing on 12th night and specifically like gender and queer theory analysis of 12th night Mm -hmm. in your work how have you or how would you engage with this play yeah i find that a lot of people take the trouser roll shakespeare plays as a good moment to intervene and to kind of wander into queer theory. And I think sometimes that works really well. And sometimes it's a little bit short sighted, or um, I don't know, I'm trying not to say short sighted anymore. I just think there are better ways that we can engage with uh, kind of transgender themes. I, I mm-hmm. the the kind of back end of this story is I, uh, like I said, I went to grad school thinking like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna really study these gender swap shows, and then I got a little burnt out on that, and I read a lot of queer theory, and I did the queer theory specialization list for my exams, and then I kind of didn't feel like it was really doing it for me. And I I got more interested in audience studies and what is the relationship between performer and audience and and how do we take care of audiences as we show them representations of, of things like sexual assault or domestic violence was really what my core dissertation project was about. 
But as a non-binary and like actively transitioning person in the academy, I also kept encountering stuff that felt really transphobic to me and these readings of the plays that were, um, even when they weren't maybe meaning to be transphobic, just noticing that we were in a moment in time where the way that we talk about gender and about people who push back on or kind of are outside of the gender binary was changing, right? Where I had colleagues who would use uncritically the word hermaphrodite, which is, you know, something that is in a lot of early modern plays, um, but yeah, yeah. but is like, hey, you know, maybe we could not use this word, which is now considered quite offensive. And yeah. so, and the other thing that I noticed was just this tendency to take words like hermaphrodite or kind of um, transvestite. There's a lot of literature um, a, about yeah. transvestism and just people sit with some awareness that that wasn't correct anymore. And then kind of wheat pasting the word transgender over it and moving forward mm. like we just hadn't, you know, it's the same thing uh, was sort of But the, it's not. And it's, yeah. it's really not. Um, so yeah. actually, I, I was thinking, it's funny that you asked me to talk about this play because I think what I've actually written about Twelfth Night is that it's not a very good trans, it's not very good as an example of a transgender play because mm -hmm. I really wanted to push back on this idea like that disguise is something that we can take uncritically as representation of gender nonconformism. I think it's really troubling from a contemporary lens to make that argument since there is so much uh, about transphobia that reads trans identity and especially trans women um, as a disguise that people put on and and use to do this is the basis of all the anti-trans bathroom legislation right is like these are quote mm -hmm. like quote unquote men in dresses so i was i was trying to kind of destabilize that but i i also think what i'd like to do and what my intervention has been is to say that you know if we are going to visit these texts and try to think about what they mean for trans people, the primary locus of what we look for when we find trans themes should be something that we're drawing from contemporary trans people, right? You can't do this mm -hmm. without them, without us, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was thinking, you know, what, what do we get if we look for things like dysphoria or things like homelessness, right? Or, or other things that are, are major kind of social components and forms of oppression that trans people face. And I use Twelfth Night as an example of kind of a bad reading of trans uh, trans themes because of the sort of face-to-face -face scene that Cesario and Sebastian have at the end where they're confronted with each other and Sebastian says, you know, do I stand there? I never had a brother. And the specific argument that I'm making is that, you know, for most trans people, your family are the hardest people to get to use your pronouns and to recognize you as the gender that you are. Um, and if you are actually looking at trans spaces where people are talking about passing or how to present themselves, um, you see a lot of conversations specifically about this problem of like, how do I get my parents to use my pronouns? Pronouns. How do I get my parents to acknowledge my new gender? Um, and so I, mm -hmm. I think that that kind of gives the lie to this problem about what happens if we are looking for, if we just take these as, as uncritical parallels for transness, kind of. And the, the counterpart problem to that to me is also that we have uh, very few trans people actively working in theater because it's a art form that has until very recently privileged like a very binary representation of gender um yes. which i think is its own whole mm -hmm. other issue but is certainly part of this right is that we have a kind of feedback loop of cis people at various stages of this 
who have started to say like, there's something marketable about drawing on transgender themes and being able to speak to kind of like a corporate pride discourse, right? Mm -hmm. without actually doing anything to help trans people be part of theater, which is a problem. So that's my very long answer. (laughs) Um, That's how I've worked with Twelfth Night in the past. But I do know that a lot of people have written very persuasively about the way that gender dynamics are working in the play. Obviously, there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. No one can see us on the podcast, but raise your hand or say, I, if you think that Viola is a transgender man. Not myself. No, no. I think that Rosalind in As You Like It has a little bit better kind of claim to it, but I don't necessarily feel like I see anything persuasive around that. I I think that even when Viola is talking to Orsino dressed as Cesario, she's still very invested in like changing how he thinks about women. Women. Um, Yeah. 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 And and there's all the language, all the language about like, you know, oh, monster and wretched disguise and all that, like the wickedness, that's what it is, the wickedness. And that's a reflection of, you know, the historical idea of um, transvestism and, you know, the fears that existed during Shakespeare's time. So it's like that goes against anything to me personally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are, things that could be done in performance probably to play up Mm -hmm. or play down those themes. And I have a friend who is invested in a reading of the play where Orsino is a trans woman, uh, which I, Mm. uh, I, I think is an interesting approach, but yeah, Mm -hmm. it's funny when I read this play that the things that jump out at me are not, I read it today and I I watched the um, Mark Rylance version from the globe and the things that jumped out at me were like wow there's a lot of plague in this play and there's a lot of dogs but I wasn't I wasn't thinking about um I watch it and I'm like it just doesn't feel that trans to me (laughs) it's not a very critical reading but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so aside from the trans identity aspect within characters outside of Viola do you have any thoughts on how queerness can be looked at within the context of Twelfth Night outside of Viola and the discussion of is Viola trans or not? I'm not sure if actually this critic uses Twelfth Night as an example, but a friend and colleague of mine, Christine Varnado, um, has written a book that is about various forms of queerness that don't necessarily immediately seem like forms of queerness. Uh, But Mm -hmm. she writes about the triad and the kind of triangulation of desire through a third object. She's not exactly writing about polyamory, but she is writing about a desire to be used by other people to fulfill their sexual desires. Um, and she looks at a couple of different plays. I feel like she probably, she. Mu- I must be thinking of this because she did write about Twelfth Night. So I'm just going to, if it's not right, I'll, I'll send you a correction. But uh, she, she writes about this desire to be used. And I think that is something that is certainly at play here, where um, even after Viola Cesario has realized that this misplaced affection is on her and is is you know not right then and is like still trying to carry out Orsino's original task like keeps showing up at the house right like keeps coming um keeps going to things (laughs) yeah yeah. Uh, (laughs) goes to a sword fight that like doesn't really want to be part of um (laughs) I'm never sure how to gender the like Viola Cesario problem I'll probably go with she her pronouns just to be safe but yeah, the the idea of that kind of queer triangulation of desire, I think, is something that's really interesting. Even if the relationships are 
I don't know. I, I can't, it's hard to say, you know, if one is more queer than the other. I think they're both kind of a queer sense of desire that is ostensibly coming out of this kind of youthful boy androgyny quality, which is certainly a major part of like early modern sexuality, even without cross-dressing. Um, mm. So I think there's a lot going on that's queer, certainly, in the desire triangles. Mm-hmm. I would say the other thing that's queer, and this is also kind of a queer heterosexuality problem, is the relationship between class aspiring and relationships um, and the, the way that, you know, Malvolio's desire for Olivia is inappropriate because she so outclasses him um, mm-hmm. that it's laughable for everyone else. And I, I think that is coded as a little bit queer in its way. Especially since there's other people in the play, like Mariah and Sir Toby, right, get married at the end, which is also like matching above her station. But I think it's it's queer for Malvolio, maybe specifically for gender reasons. But mm-hmm. that's probably not my argument. I'm just not sure who to cite. <laughs> that's interesting you say that, though, because I was reading on the National Theater's performance with Tamsin Grieg as Malvolia. Yeah. So is that maybe somewhere like where as a theater maker, when you're looking at how to explore queerness within this play, that's one realm in which like that class and that queer coding could play a good part hand in hand, possibly. Yeah, I would love to see that production because I love Tamsin Grieg. I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. But yeah, I think Malvolio is, I I don't know, the afterlives of the play seem to have a lot to do with Malvolio. Honestly, there's a in one of my editions, I'm not sure which one this was in. um, But they talk about how for for like the 18th century, the play when it was revived was often called by like Malvolio and that a lot of the attention was on this Malvolio plot and the kind of what I think of as the primary kind of romantic plot came back into fashion in the 19th century. And there were a bunch of, I think this was kind of early 2010s productions that really focused on recuperating Malvolio. There's a play I think called I Malvolio, which is all about his kind of aftermath and and there were also some productions that were intent about reading it as like a kind of a cyberbullying piece and using it as using it to teach teens about the dangers of cyberbullying, which is an interesting take on the um the letter mm-hmm. trick. I think Malvolio is is a very sympathetic character that maybe there's something queer about the way that our affect is kind of playing off of him. Because he's not really likable, but I do feel bad for him in almost every production. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you've sort of touched upon this, but what do you wish people would stop reading into this play? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, in general, I feel like my part of my calling has been just to say, like, pants are not trans. And mm-hmm. that's there. I wish that we would talk more about the eunuch components of it, because mm-hmm. that is mentioned in the very beginning, and then it kind of gets dropped out. And people treat Viola when she's dressed as Cesario as a man. And there is actually a really robust canon of literature about how eunuchs in the early modern period were treated or seen. Um, They show up in a lot of places and they kind of have this outside gender element to them. And I I think also 
I'm not sure if this is more popular in the kind of 18th century, but I think there's also a sexualized element to castrati and their kind of singing virtuosity. There's They're really prized for this element, and, it, and I think that there were a number of castrati who had avid fandoms of women who were very interested in them as a object of desire. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily sexual desire or if it's a kind of like romantic, artistic, sublime desire, right? But I, I think that there are a lot more interesting things to say about eunuchs that we maybe don't get in performance very much. I think maybe it's difficult to present a eunuch. We tend to mm -hmm. think of them as like a comic character and we don't want to see Viola or Cesario necessarily in that way. That's what I've seen with Antony and Cleopatra when we have representations of the eunuch. It usually goes kind of for cheap laughs. But also in there, it's often like comparing the two. It's not a pants role mm -hmm. portraying a eunuch. It's a often cis man, mm -hmm. cis male actor playing a eunuch that then is played for jokes. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't see like any exploration of Viola dressed up as a eunuch, mm -hmm. Cesario. Eunuch. Like Cesario yeah. is a eunuch. It's used kind of as a device to explain her, maybe her voice or her mannerisms, I guess. But yeah, you're right. It's mm -hmm. not played as a, Yeah. it's not exactly the same, at least in contemporary casting. It's not casting. played for homophobic laughs. <laughs> not in the same way anyway. My like follow-up was going to be, what do you wish people would start reading into this play? <laughs> More eunuch More stuff. More eunuch stuff. I'm, I'm certain there is yes. eunuch lit on Twelfth Night. I remember that being part of my undergrad class on this was a, a big section about eunuchs, which also might have just been because they didn't want to talk about trans themes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, mm. it's interesting to kind of parse out and I would, I would like to see more with that if we could manage it without being super offensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I want to read into it about plague because right before I watched it, my friend Ari Friedlander was talking about a argument by Ian Moulton about how love is a metaphor for plague and maybe vice versa in a lot of early modern texts. Um, and Ari, I think, has in his is is planning a specific piece about Twelfth Night and plague. But honestly, when I was listening to it and watching it, they mentioned sickness and plague a lot in the play. Yeah. Also, after kind of living into like a year and a half of quarantine, I was like, yeah, she doesn't want anyone to come into her house, right? Like, she doesn't want a suitor to come to her house. She, she doesn't want this man from the gate. She's had someone recently die. She's had someone recently die. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely was taught this play as like, you know, Olivia has a certain amount of power as a uh, wealthy, unmarried woman. Um, and that that is like the reason she doesn't want, which I think is certainly also a play here, obviously. But I was just sort of like, no, she has her bubble. And she didn't ask for Andrew Check to be in her bubble, right? <laughs> like, I think we all have a really different relationship to early Who modern would? drama now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, plague. I'm very into plague now. We all are. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there yeah. was so much plague going on during Shakespeare's time in London that it makes sense that it gets referenced constantly, right? Yeah. When I finished my dissertation last year, I had written this kind of depressing coda to my dissertation, which was about performance. Like my whole dissertation is about live performance and the ending of it, like writing it and finishing it during kind of the worst summer heat of COVID last year. I was wrote kind of a depressing, you know, who can say what access will do now? And one of my advisors really, really sweetly sent me this a chart basically that was listing the openings and closures of the theater of uh, I think it was either the Black Fri I think it was the Black Friars during yeah. like you know 11 years of plague seven years yeah 
Yes, yeah, yeah. 11 years yeah, of play. The map. Yeah, and it was like, it was like open m- and closed. Two years total. It was like open for a couple months and then closed and then like open for a few months and closed. And I was actually, you know, thinking about how, uh, I don't know, interesting it is to be living during a time where we have to determine when it's safe to reopen and how to reopen. And I know a lot of theaters and other arts organizations have that super on their mind. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see them reckoning with that same problem. Like we have to keep our doors open somehow, but also also, also plague. plague. Yeah. Right. And like reckoning with the idea of are people gonna wanna see shows that deal with this? It's like, well, they did. Yeah. yeah. We haven't changed yeah. that much, unfortunately, as as we keep saying on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird time. Yeah. Like we were talking about the Antonio Sebastian um, relationship. Mm-hmm. Are there any thoughts that you have specifically on those two with the text as well as taking that onto a stage? Because we see those two, specifically Antonio, as queer coded. Right. Well, all Antonios are gay. <laughs> Famously, yes. all Antonios are gay. Yes. He's a gay pirate. Gay yes. Pirate. <laughs> <laughs> and Sebastian is also a name that is like deeply, uh, like St. Sebastian is kind of known as like the, the gay saint. Mostly just seemingly, seemingly for being like very beautiful <laughs> seems to be the reason. Um, and <laughs> I, I think St. Sebastian is the one who is like pierced by arrows. So I think there's probably also something about penetration um, to that reading. But yeah, Sebastian and Antonio both, I think, read very queer. I, I think the kind of male-male homoerotic friendship that we have with them is doubled by the Orsino-Cesario male-male intimacy component. I definitely am someone who sees most drama from the period as being very gay and especially homoerotic. I don't know. I don't know how deep that needs to go in staging. It probably depends on your actors and your chemistry um, and sort of what you're trying to do in other spaces. But he does give him all his money, right? Um, And he does, when he thinks it's um, Sebastian, kind of throw his life on the line for him to defend him. And I think that is, it definitely represents a deep intimacy that we're supposed to just take for granted with very little, very few scenes to establish, right? Um, And every scene is just about how good of a friend, what a a deep love I bear for you, right? Um, (laughs) Which feels very very queer um i'm trying to think if there's something more deep i have to say about it other than just i i think there is a an early modern not trope but like an understanding about how power works and that if you have more power than someone they are a available sexual object to you and that kind of is a non-gendered status which isn't to say that homosexuality was like awesome you know it wasn't like necessarily condoned as an identity in the way that it is now but it was very common uh very much like understood as part of a lot of other social dynamics and i think that there has been two forces of i'm struggling to articulate this like historicist kind of anxiety that a lot of academics and i think um maybe also theater practitioners have about putting contemporary ideas into the past which i think My take on that is that we always do that whether we want to or not. We don't really have control of when we import our contemporary ideas and put them onto the past because you can't get outside of your present moment. (laughs) But I I don't think that it's forced. I think it's there. And if we're doing these plays now, we have to acknowledge that we're doing them now. Yeah. Even if we're trying to do original practice, 
the audience is still not going to see a intimate male friendship and be like, ah, yes, well, um, in the early modern period, marriage was about property <laughs> and land, and intimacy was often reserved for same-sex friendships. Right. Like, it's not in their it's forefront, not in their forefront yeah. either, and we don't have to hand-ring about what does this mean to us today. Right. This is timeless, right? Yeah. What is the impact yeah. of it today? Not to dunk on original practice, but I think there's just so many other ways that we fail, that we will fail and will always fail to uh, recreate the no, historical dunk. situation. Dunk. <laughs> As to your point about bringing something to a contemporary audience, and you're always kind of trying to negotiate something that works in between them. I mean, I think that's what's satisfying about theater, right? Is working about about working on any theater, but especially when you're producing something that's, you know, 400 years old, that what's satisfying about that is finding the moments in the exchange or points of crossover or surprising wormholes, right? I think is is the most sensational mm-hmm. way of putting it, but I think that's what I enjoy about theater. That might make me a bad practitioner for some people, but it's what I'm here for. <laughs> to connect your previous point, pants rolls don't equal trans. That's why you can't just like slap that identity onto a pants roll without doing the deeper like analysis of like, well, why? Mm-hmm. Why does this character have that identity? Right. And what does that also mean? What do, other things does that introduce yeah. into their reality? Well, and I think I started even writing about trans issues and and I don't think there's this kind of ongoing debate in trans circles about like how integral dysphoria is to trans identity and I don't think that you need to be dysphoric to be trans but it seems curious to me that in a lot of the things that scholars were reading as representations of trans identity there was just none of that and then I started trying to it's hard to prove a negative right so it's hard to write an article about how something isn't there um, so then I started looking for like where is dysphoria when when do you know characters in Shakespeare plays or other early modern plays talk about dissatisfaction with their body and it does exist um, I mean I, I think Joan Lapoussel in Henry VI is an example where she has her her kind of like madness monologue to the demons that she's engaging with where she, there's a lot mm-hmm. about her body that I think you could read as if you if you wanted to right you could read as trans there's a great play by John Lilly which actually predates Shakespeare um, and I think a lot of as you like it is kind of a ripoff of John Lilly um, but this play Galatea is having a real moment right now I don't know if you saw it, it was pre- I literally saw it three times yeah. in this spring <laughs> there were like three different Zoom productions of Galatea. But it's having a moment, I think, because it's a play about two ostensibly female characters who are, well, (laughs) it's a play about a village where the most beautiful girl in the village has to be sacrificed every five years to Neptune, um, and two fathers who both think that their daughters are the most beautiful people in the village. So they dress them up like boys and send them into the woods, and they fall in love with each other, because that's obviously what would happen if you did that. And then Mm -hmm. at the end of the play, there's a bunch of gods. There's a lot of stuff going on in that play. I super recommend it if you need a (laughs) non-Shakespeare topic for the pod. But Venus basically says, I will support this relationship by turning one of you into a boy. And she says, I'm going to do it at the church door. Neither of you will know who it's going to be till we get there. And it happens after the end of the play. So we don't actually see anybody transformed into a boy. And... 
It's an interesting play because one of the characters expresses discomfort with cross-dressing and feels um, uncomfortable. Um, there's been a lot of work, and I will cite Andy Kesson and uh, Emma Franklin, who have been working on Galatea for like five years. I think they're in part what's created this energy around productions of the play and kind of um, recuperating John Lilly. But it's it's a fantastic play that has a lot of these queer themes spelled out that we only get hinted at in Shakespeare. And it's just that Shakespeare is more commonly produced and known. So we think, you know, this is as good as it gets. But really, this stuff is is um, pretty prominent in early modern literature, especially if you know where to, to look. But um, I think most people are just most familiar with Shakespeare. To circle back, this is something that you mentioned or hinted at. What was that boy relationship like? What would that have looked like in terms of the social context? What was going on during the early modern era for the public who, you know, would have been watching this play? It's an interesting question because it's also like a literary question, right? There are things that we say and do in literature that are maybe not exactly the same as like a cultural studies approach to 17th century England. But there is this kind of this desire for classical archetypes of beauty, which definitely includes that like fairy youth object of desire for like older men matched with younger men, right? This like age dynamic is part of it. And I would also add that, you know, whiteness is a big part of it. It's not just any youth, right? It's a white and Petrarchan beautied youth. So I think that's definitely at play here, drawing on that kind of Ganymede-esque um, type of boy love object. But I also, um, I'm thinking a little bit about boy actors and the role that they play. There are whole, obviously, like whole theaters of boy actors, um, as well as boy actors who specifically played women's parts in, in mixed age group theaters. But my colleague Simone Chess has written a really interesting piece. And a lot of things that I'm mentioning today, not everything, are from this like Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies special issue on trans studies. I'm just going to plug it. I'm in it, but I'm plugging it because like it's just a good volume. Uh, Emma, Emma and Andy, their essay on Galatea is in there. And then this essay from Simone Chess is also in there. But she writes about how boy actors like some of the most proficient and um, celebrated boy actors kind of like maintained a queer identity even after they aged out of those roles and were gendered by other people as feminine or female for a long time. And when they would make kind of cameos in other pieces, often they were kind of playing themselves as like an actor, right? Like as a kind of truly a cameo. And, and so I think there's this element of a trans femininity of on the letra, right? Like a little bit of this desire for a like feminine man or a like feminine androgynous person that is based in that proto-trans identity that's definitely part of a I don't know that that is like something you can do if you're not an actor, really, but it was a like specific type of desire that Simone Chess has got all this like historical textual evidence of, which is kind of fantastic. And then to circle back a little bit to the question you actually asked, which was about um, <laughs> gay desire, I think, right, in the period. There's a word, I think it's ningle, N-I-N-G-L-E, which is like a early modern, it, it's kind of like a fanboy, like a gay fanboy, um, who's kind of like a hanger on. And it usually is someone who is in the employ of a rich, richer person. Um, and I encountered this word first when I was working on The Roaring Girl, which is a Middleton and Decker play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very queer, weird play. 
but I, I think I encountered the word Ningle in Roaring Girl, which is a play that is obviously primarily about this like cross-dressed um, cut purse character who is very swashbuckling, like has a sword, is kind of based on a historical person. Um, I could talk about the cut purse forever. But actually what I find interesting about that play, right, is the title Roaring Girl is a play on Roaring Boy, which is a like early modern subculture of like youths in London who had way too much money and time on their hands. It's essentially like all the second sons who like couldn't get jobs doing something else and weren't really in line to inherit money but are still rich um, and benefactors of generational wealth are ostensibly in London to get apprenticeships but are mostly just kind of dicking around. Um, and there's all this literature from the period of people being mad at them. I wrote this uh, paper about it when I was in early grad school, which I'll never publish because now it's way too dated. But I basically was saying like, the way that hipsters were in like gentrifying Brooklyn is like how people feel about Roaring Boys, like Roaring Boys were the hipsters of early modern England. You have all these um, kind of pamphlets and like sermons against their like idle lifestyle, um, but they're also treated as very sexually licentious and a problem. They're they're like not doing procreation rights. That millennials are killing the having babies industry. Yeah, <laughs> I think this like ningle <laughs> quality, right, is part of that. Of they are kind of having too much. They're like enjoying each other too much, right? Um, and and implying like they're probably having sex with each other and they're they're just wasting all their money at the bar. They're single and ready to ningle. <laughs> they're single, single and ready, and to, ready ningle. to ningle. I think ningle might also have a connotation as a prostitute. It's hard because when you OED any insult, every word means prostitute, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, I think that that's another part of it is there's this like youth culture that to me, you know, I'm shorthanding it here, but I think it reads really queer and that other people certainly thought was a threat to primogeniture and uh, a threat to reproduction. And another part of that, which actually I'll tie it back to Twelfth Night, here we go. The other thing about these kind of roaring boys is that they are, I think this is from Amanda Bailey's Monstrous Manor. There is a kind of secondhand thrift store being run out the back of the theaters after a while, um, where they're like, we don't need these costumes so we can sell them, um, which means that people are able to buy clothes that they're not really allowed to wear. Like there are, are outside of their class. Yeah, very right. strict sumptuary laws about like what types of colors and like styles of clothes you can wear. But the theater got these secondhand from various nobles or made them um, and then they don't need them. And so they're kind of selling them out the back door. And they're like kind of allowed to like right, skirt these like, sumptuary laws because it's theater. It's kind yeah. of not allowed, but it's like nobody's really checking. So another part of the like roaring boy culture is they're dressing way above their class and they're like dressing ridiculously. And there are, uh, I think she has this legal account of a man arrested for wearing a monstrous great pair of hose. And I spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking like, what does that mean? What does it, what did it look like? But again, I think that's like very queer, but I think that's a little like Malvolio's yeah. <laughs> dressing escapades of cross-gartered. Yeah. Those cross, yeah. The cross-gartered. And Fashion mm -hmm. victim. Oh, that's fun. I'm really glad I know that exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a we great- We literally uh, just had a conversation about theater inventory earlier today. Yes. Right. So. Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Theater's got a lot to answer for. One last question. Any hot takes that we haven't covered? Hot takes? I'm still working, I'm workshopping this Twelfth Night Dogs situation. 
which I'm not sure that there's much there other than like postures of servitude with the repeated spaniel references, which also is kind of a Queen Elizabeth thing. Queen Elizabeth is always calling other people her spaniel or her pug, or other people are calling themselves her spaniel or her pug. Hot takes. I feel like those are my hot, my hot takes are always, this is trans not in the way you wanted it to be. Like, I, this, just whatever you thought, I don't, I don't agree with it. I guess I kind of pose myself <laughs> as a contrarian. I will say the other the other moment in Twelfth Night that feels kind of queer or trans to me is um, Olivia has the line where she says, I would you were as I would have you be, which is separate from the what you will line earlier in the play. And I think that's a very seductive way of thinking about desire for almost anyone, right? But also, I think there's a lot you could play with that if you were trying to do a trans reading, right? I think that I would you were as I would have you be is... Uh, a sentiment that a lot of trans people encounter from other people around them. <laughs> mm. But also kind of about when we project desires on others that are not really based in who they are. I think there's a lot of play there, but I don't know if that's a hot take. It's just a, a line that I like. <laughs> I think you could grow stuff out of that one line that you like and, you know, create a larger hot take. I think, I think we so could chose. bake the take. Yeah, yeah, bake the take. <laughs> We'd like to thank Dr. Sawyer Kemp for appearing on our show today and spending time talking Shakespeare with us. We had a blast. Feel free to check out their work in Shakespeare journals near you and look out for their recent article to Othello's Transitioning Anti-Blackness in an upcoming Shakespeare bulletin. And of course, as always, thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is... Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits... Here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. This is from Twelfth Night, Act 3, Scene 4, said by Olivia. I have said too much unto a heart of stone, and laid mine honor too unchary out. There's something in me that reproves my fault, but such a headstrong potent fault it is, that it but mocks reproof.